Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today we are here with Jim Afinowich. He's the managing partner for IBG Fox and Finn. And man, you guys have been doing this for about 30 plus years. I think your website, the website said over 1,100 closings. Oh, awesome, man. I'm looking forward to learning from you today. Thank you for being on the show. Hey, you're welcome. Thanks for having me, Ron. I always like to start with the origin story. We talked a little bit before the show started. I knew, you, like you told me, you started off with a broker and then you got into a little bit more advanced advising and stuff. How did you get into the space? What got you into mergers and acquisitions? I would be what some people would call the classic entrepreneur. The last time I worked for anybody else, I was 20 years old. I know I'm unemployable. So <laughs> between the age of 20 and 34, I owned 14 different businesses. And if they had a diagnosis in those days, they would have said I had attention deficit disorder. But what I ultimately decided was that I really liked doing deals better than I did running businesses. And uh, it's now been over 35 years selling businesses and I haven't gotten bored. So just love the deal of the deal. <laughs> I mean, I love the business of business. All businesses have a common denominator, common denominators. You have to manage people. You have to manage money. Hopefully there's more money coming in than going out. You have to provide a product or service the public wants at a competitive price. Now, if you know all of the financials and marketing and management, you can learn the end product. It doesn't make any difference where you're selling airplanes or pizzas or brokerage services. You still have a business to run. So we, Everybody that works in my firm has owned and operated a business at some time. That's very, very helpful. The end product you can learn. Was it pizzas or airplanes? Yeah, I just have to learn that. But basic financial statements, the same. So let's fast forward right now. You've done, you've had a lot of experience. You've seen the different stuff. You've seen Having done it for 30 years, you've seen the full cycle of the economy, recessions and boom economies and stuff like that. What do you see going on right now that can be a lesson learned for the guys out there? Well, the economy is always changing. It's never, never the same. We're either going up or we're going down. There are cycles now. How severe the cycles are varies from time to time. Are we in a recession? Are we going into a recession? Have we been in one? I can give you three different people who will answer yes to each of those questions. So you have to know that there's going to be a change. One of the best ways to buy a business or sell a business is using an SBA 7A loan. 
And when SBA looks at it, they say, well, how much debt service can this business cover? And now let's give it a coverage ratio. But for every dollar of debt service after certain expenses, we want you to have a dollar and 35 cents. They anticipate that there's going to be a decline. So don't over leverage when times are good because times will get tighter and you need to have your debt based upon the low watermark, not the high watermark. So know that there's going to be change in the market and just be prepared for it. So now that interest rates are going up, the actual offer that ends up going to the owner by those loans has to go down to because it covered the debt coverage ratio. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah. And I'll use private equity as an example. Our larger transactions, the majority of the deals we sell today are to private equity. And so they get money from investors, they buy businesses with it, and they have to get a return for their investors. If they're going to get the same return today that they did a year ago with interest rates being higher and knowing that they leveraged their purchase, the multiple they pay has got to go down to compensate for the interest rate going up. So yes, multiples values go down when interest rates go up. So those are guys who were thinking about selling last year and now probably regretting it because we don't know when that's going to switch around. It could switch around next quarter. It could switch around. It goes up and down. I don't know if the last time, correct me if I'm wrong here, but usually it doesn't last more than a year or two before they start correcting things. That's true. But the value of a business is very volatile. I've seen people wait. We had a client selling a business in February of 2020. And he decided, yeah, if I wait a little, wait a little bit longer, my value is going to go up. And well, COVID came along a number of days later and the business became unsellable. Uh, we are just now talking about three years later, going back to market with the business. I think it's a fallacy to always look try and predict what's going to happen in the future. You can't, you just need to position your business for sale. And I like to tell people you need to run the business like you're never going to sell it. And you also need to run it like you're going to sell it tomorrow. <laughs> Those may sound contradictory, but they aren't, you don't know. I'll give you a very sad example. We had business, a lady came to us and said, my husband owned and ran this business. I had nothing to do with it. At an early age, he was killed in an accident. I've taken it over. I'm learning about the business and how to run it, but I need to sell it. It wasn't set up. It was totally dependent upon the guy that died unexpectedly. And it was a business that was worth millions of dollars. And in the end, she ended up, we couldn't sell it, had to close it down. So he didn't run the business for someone else to take over. It was totally dependent upon him. One of the first endeavors when I moved over from real estate to uh, wanting to do mergers and acquisitions was a similar scenario. And I spent probably a few months trying to see if I could fix that, right? And I don't think it's fixable, meaning that I went out and talked to attorneys and talked to forensic accountants and some other people that I knew and said, can we build a team that can recover and run a business until it's able to be sold in the event 
that somebody passes or something happens and it has to be sold. And <clears throat> the problem is there's just too many logistics. The reason I did that was there was a really cool commercial electric company. I want to say they had 30, 35 trucks. That means they had 35 commercial electricians and they would do manufacturing plants and stuff like that. Owner dies, has a heart attack, passes away. And they couldn't sell it. They couldn't do anything with it. They couldn't even cut their checks, the payroll check. The only person on the account was the owner. Even it took a little bit, but even the owner's wife had a hard time getting anything done. The business pretty much just sat there and they auctioned off all the assets, but that wasn't what that business was worth. I thought maybe there's a way to solve it, like build it, raise a little money so that we, cause we'd have to put our own money in to run it until it's, until it's sold. But uh, it's just too many risk factors, right? If one person in the estate decides that they don't like what you did, you may never get your money back. Well, that's very true. Some businesses can stand the passing of an owner. Some can't. Uh, look at your business and say, if I died tomorrow, who would run my business? Who would take care of me? Who would sign the paychecks? And if you don't have answers to those questions, then your business is probably going to go away. You need to think about those things ahead of time. And we, particularly younger business owners, and they're in their thirties, they're going to work for another, they're not going to think about selling it for another 30 years. So if they don't have to do anything, well, the day the doctor tells you, you got the X number of months to live, it's hard to sit down and just change it overnight. I like these, the people that come and say, Hey, I want to sell my business in the six months. I said, great. It'll take you three years. And they're like, what do you mean? I told you I want to sell it in six months. I said, well, you want to sell it in six months, but now you got to change your, you've been running it as a sole operator with two, the guy was a heat in there guy. You said, you're running it as a sole operator with two part-time guys. You got to get yourself, if you really want to sell it, because he said, he thought he could sell it and make money, use the money to retire, put it in his retirement account. Yeah. I was like, if you want to do that, you need to move yourself out of the business. He had one really good tech. I said, make the other tech, the guy that goes out and does everything. You start backing off, get another person. And we walked through the process, but he thought with six months, like I'll probably sell this in six months. I was like, not if you want a real check, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, if you want to give it away, you want right. to sell it at a discount, you might sell it sooner. But yeah, yeah, I mean, a lot of what we do as a broker is educate our clients and potential clients as to the realities of the market. And it's not what you want. Here's what it takes. And some areas of business, the average sale can take a year. We like to talk with owners at least two or three years in advance to get the business ready to sell, right. start thinking about it. And an analogy I'd use is if you're going to sell a house, what do you do? You put a fresh coat of paint on it. You take care of the yard, take care of the problems before someone comes in and whacks it off the price. If you've been involved in real estate, take a house that needs a new roof. It's going to cost you $10,000 to put a new roof on it. Buyer comes in and says that house needs a new roof. And I'm going to take 20,000 off the price because I got to pay for it. And I got to deal with it. And I don't believe it can be done for 10,000. So eliminate the question, eliminate the problem before it pops up. 
Yeah. And as a real estate investor, I don't do very much of it anymore, but I'll tell you, you pull off a $10,000 roof, you don't know what you're getting into because you're liable to open up other stuff, right? How many, how many times, especially in Oklahoma where I was buying stuff, how many times I pulled off a $10,000 roof to just pop a roof on it and realize that the electric in the house that I just bought was still tube and knob, which means it was bare wire wrapped around insulating tubes. Once yeah. I see that as an investor, I have a moral obligation to fix it because it's a fire hazard. So yep. now I'm another two grand into with my team, which you can be more in this state and more in most states, but for my team, it's still a minimum of two grand to rewire the entire house, right? You start yep. digging into the wiring and realize, wait a second, there's no insulation in the wall. Like you open a can of worms. So when, a, when the investor says, I'm not going to, it's 10, 10 grand for a roof, I'm going to knock 20 grand off. In his mind, he's like, it could be a $40,000 adventure. <laughs> right? Exactly. Well, it's the same thing with the business. A buyer is going to come in and do due diligence. The bank giving you a loan is going to do due diligence. Simple things like do your financial statements match your tax returns? If they don't, well, what else is there a problem? Maybe that's off by $1,000, but is it off by $1,000 or is it off by 101000 and you're only seeing the 1000 Right. I'll tell you, as a buyer, I always assume that you're more likely to lie to me than you are to lie to the IRS. So when I look at your tax return and then I look at your, your financial statements you handed me, we're going to look at the tax return with more honesty. We're going to think it's more honest than what you show us. That's just my natural inclination is like, you're probably going to lie to me faster than you would ever lie to the IRS. If you find something off on the tax return, maybe it's explainable, maybe it isn't. Yeah. I would say if I'm the buyer, you're the seller, if you're going to lie to the IRS and risk going to jail, how much are you going to lie to me? All I can do is sue you. I can't put you behind bars. One of the advantages of small businesses is having things that you can write off. You've got a company car and it's used for business. It's used for personal. There's some gray lines there. But a lot of times we sit down with people that want to sell their business. And one of the first things we do is what's called recasting financial statements. We want to know what the real cash flow is to that owner. So we do what's called ad backs. Your membership to the country club isn't a necessary expense. So I can adjust the add that back to my income. You get too many ad backs or questionable ones, just raises flags. You lie to the IRS, what would you do with me? But also, most businesses are going to sell for a multiple of earnings. That adjusted earnings of seller's discretionary cash flow or EBITDA, whatever the basis that you're using in this valuation, it's going to sell for a multiple of that. So I'll talk with the seller a couple of years in advance and I'll say all of this, let's call it gray money <laughs> that's questionable. For every gray dollar, you're saving yourself, what, 35 cents in tax? Mm -hmm. That's right. I'm saving 35 cents on every dollar. And I'll say, yeah, and when we sell your business, we're going to sell it for a multiple of four times earnings. So for every 35 cents you save, you just gave up $4 in the sale price. So is, right. it, is it worth saving that money? You're going to lose it in your sale price. So let's clean that stuff up ahead of time. I know this may sound un-American, but if you're going to sell your business in the next couple of years, 
I want you to pay all the tax you possibly can. Right. That's why when they said, I want to sell it in six months, I say, great, and it'll take you three years is because we look at the last three years, tax returns, the last three years of financial statements. And if you really want the best, highest maximum value, you need to show not only has it been good for the last three years, but it's actually increasing. You're not, you're in an inclining business, meaning that the business is growing, the business is doing well. Right. And unfortunately, you've done so many deals, over 1,100 Correct me if I'm wrong here, but unfortunately, a lot of owners wait until they're too burned out or they should have thought about selling a while ago. If you look at the snapshot of right now and you rewind five years ago, and if you ask them how they were doing five years ago, it was better. And it wasn't because the economy was better. It was because they were engaged. Yeah. I honestly think that people wait until they... Well, a lot of times they wait too long. And one thing we tell every brand new client don't take your, your foot off the gas pedal because yep. we've seen people that put their business up for sale and now they relax and yep. they quit pushing and their sales start going down. You look at a business that dropped a dollar in revenue and a buyer is going to go, oh man, it's a downward trend. When is the bottom going to be? You know, I'm going to have to discount the price because your trend want to sell while business is going up, not while business is declining, if you can't at all possibly do it. Yeah. And one of the guys that we talked to came into one of my meetings. He says, I'd never sell my business right now. I landed our three biggest customers. I was going to sell it last year, but this year we landed our three biggest customers. And I was like, man, it's the perfect time to sell. He's what are you talking about? You knew you wanted to sell it last year. You already have what you want to do next. You already got, have, he already has a team working on the next project. I said, now you've landed three big customers. You've got a decent incline. Sell it now when you can show people that I've got a business. It runs well. It's actually growing. I got three of the biggest clients we've ever got. I just got this other project I want to go focus on. I want to take some chips off the table and go work on that. And we'll be happy with that. We don't mind that your story is I'm ready to do something else. We do mind that you wait until it plateaus for a year and a half. You sucked all the money out of it. And like, now you want to sell it to us because it, it's not paying for your other hobby, your other project. That's a different world. Completely different world. And you know what we're talking about with businesses, unlike real estate, I mean, you can look at real estate and say, give me some comps in that neighborhood. It's going to be between... 175 and 185 a square foot. The value of businesses is much more volatile and widespread. The old saying, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Well, yeah, we have a deal we closed recently. We had six offers on, and the offers ranged from 12 million to 18 million. Same business, same set of financials six different buyers. One buyer looked at it and said, nope, most I'd pay for this is 12 million. And another buyer said, yeah, I'd pay 18 million for this. And then everything in between. So much of what sets the value of a business is the buyer's perception of risk. Risk, the old investment adage, the greater the risk, the greater the return. So. If it's a buyer, the greater a risk I see in buying this business, the greater a return I'm going to want for taking that and the lower the price I have to pay. Now, that may be real risk or perceived risk. So you want to look at it from a buyer's point of view 
and say, where are the risks? There's customer risk, customer concentration. This has three customers that each are 30% of the business. And you lose one of those customers, you go from being profitable to losing money. That is a very, very big risk to a buyer. So if I'm the buyer for that deal, I'm going to say, yeah, I'm going to discount my price because of that risk, but also I'm going to change the terms of the deal. I'm not going to write you a check. I'm not going to give you all cash for it. I'll give you a down payment and I'm going to give you payments over X number of years. And if one of those three customers goes away, so do my payments. I'm going to pay you on an earnout because of customer risk. That's one thing. Financial statements being a mess and don't match. That's risk there that do that. Um, risk management risk. How deep is your bench? I see this all the time. The owner has 90% of the customer relationships. They do all the sales. And they say, yeah, well, here's the keys and I want to walk out. No, buyer's going to want you to stay on for a couple of years to transfer those customers and mentally you're already gone. So to eliminate that risk of you being the only guy doing the sales, you need to start bringing somebody else in. It's if you're buying my business run and I say, I got two scenarios. One is, yep, I know my customers. I've been the customer rep, the sales rep for the last 20 years. I take care of 90% of the customers myself. I'm proud of that. Now, business B said, yeah, I started out. I took care of all the customers to begin with. And I still know them and talk to them occasionally. But a couple of years ago, I brought in a sales manager and he's taken all over all the direct relationships. So that eliminates the risk before the buyer sees it as a risk. Because I guarantee you when a buyer sees a risk, he's going to discount the price and change the terms in a way that is not going to excite you as a seller. <laughs> now, you mentioned earlier that you had one of your deals where it was a range from $12 million to $18 million. I always love, I love those scenarios because my favorite question is, which one did the seller, like which offer did the seller actually accept? In this case, he accepted the $18 million one, but a lot of cases we find that they accept not the highest offer, but the one that they like the best. It isn't just total dollars, it's terms. I remember doing a presentation at a conference once, uh, trying to make a point about value. So I went out to the audience and I looked at a guy and he said, man, I really like that watch of yours. That's fantastic. I said, I'll give you $10,000 for it. Would you sell it to me? And he said, for 10,000? I said, yes. I said, okay, let's shake on it. We shook on it and I said, okay, give me the watch. Here's a dollar. He said, what's that? I said, well, that's your first weekly payment. Now, I'm, I'll give you $10,000, but it'll be a dollar a week till I pay it off. He said, well, well, I didn't agree to that. I said, well, yes, you did. We shook on it. We hadn't talked about terms. We only talked about price. <laughs> terms yeah. make a difference as well. So maybe you take the second, third offer because you like the terms. But more importantly, when an owner is selling a business, it's almost like putting their child up for adoption. It's time to kick the kid out of the house, but you want to make sure they have a good home. You like the people that are taking it over. 
I remember one deal, it was a veterinary practice that was being sold. And there was like six different offers. There was another broker in my office doing this. And he went into the vet and he said, Hey doc, I got good news. I got a full price, all cash offer. And he said, well, which buyer was it from? And he said, oh, so-and-so. And he said, no, I don't want to sell to him. I want to sell to buyer number B. He said, well, buyer B offered you less money with 50% down and carry a note. This is full price and all cash. The doc said, I don't care. I'll sell to buyer B on those terms before I'd sell to buyer A. That guy is a jerk. Employees and customers have been with me for 30 years. I want my employees and my customers taken care of, and I'm not sticking them with a jerk like that guy. I refer to that as a safe pair of hands. A lot of business owners want to know that they're handing this over to a safe pair of hands for their customers and their employees. And hands down, you can build... You can buy houses, almost said houses, because it works in the housing industry too. You can buy houses, businesses, or anything on that matter based on your rapport with the owner fast at a lower price, better terms than somebody coming in with all cash if they can't build that rapport. And just understanding, like, understanding what the seller really wants to accomplish and helping them get there is, is that. So we're currently, I've got a team of people, advisors and stuff like you that come on the show and stuff contributing, but we're putting a book on building rapport inside of these deals. The whole book is about the rapport building side of it, because I think it is so critical for any business transaction more than almost anything else. And I think a lot of people get it wrong, especially new guys like myself. And when we first got into that, we were taught, look at the balance sheet, look at the income statement. This is a numbers game. Are the numbers good? If the numbers are good, you buy the business. And it doesn't work that way. No, the single largest reason mergers fail is not financial, it's cultural integration. You're looking at the culture. In the mid-market sale of mergers and acquisitions, about 70% of our buyers are private equity. Private equity is more concerned about the people than they are the numbers. Who's the manager? What's the management team look like? Are they the right people? Can we work with them? The numbers are important, but that isn't the last thing at all. Ron, you had a very good point in understanding what that seller wants. If you're a buyer looking at a business, you do need to understand what they want. Yeah, and a lot of people just don't realize that there's there's the physical part of the money, the assets and stuff, but there is a huge psychological component to this. As owners and entrepreneurs, you've been an entrepreneur all your life. We really tie our identity around what we do. You ask a hundred people on the street, who are you? And they'll tell you their job. <laughs> well, I'm yeah. the CEO of so-and-so. Like, no, I ask you, like, I do it for fun now. Like I'll be in a coffee shop. Somebody will step beside me. It's like, Hey, I don't say, what do you do? I say, who are you? And uh, I say it like that kind of passing. And they're like, they'll tell me about their job. They'll tell me about everything. The funny thing is rarely do they tell me about their family unless I ask. And rarely do they say, I'm John Smith. I love to paint paintings and I love to travel. I'm a security guard at this guy place or I'm the CEO of that. Yep. And part of the checklist, if you will, to see if you're ready to sell your business is looking in the mirror. Are you ready to sell that? As a guy who makes his money on commission when the deal closes, when a seller backs out at the last minute, I've spent hundreds of hours that I'm not getting paid for. We try and screen potential sellers. 
And after all these years, I found one very simple way of doing that. And that's saying, okay, Ron, if we sell your business today, what are you going to do tomorrow? And if you don't have a clear vision of what your life looks like tomorrow, there's a very good chance you're going to back out of the sale because that business is your identity. Now, and the guy that says to me, oh, I'm going to play golf. Yeah, you can't play golf seven days a week. So maybe selling your business right now isn't right for you. So as a broker, I don't want to waste my time with someone who's not going to sell. And if they can't tell me what they're going to do afterwards, then they're probably not ready. Is the business ready? And are you ready as an owner to sell? Both of those questions have to be, have the right answers. And the buyer should know both those too. As a buyer, that's one of the first questions I'll ask. Like, you spent 30 years here. And when we close this, what does the next day look like? What are your plans? And I did it in the real estate. I built that muscle in the real estate world just because I did a lot of creative deals inside of the residential real estate world. Somebody says, well, I need $60,000 down on a $100,000 house. And I was like, $60,000 down? You mind if I ask you what you can use the money for? Well, I'm going to go on a cruise. This is a little old lady. It's like, I'm going on a cruise. I was like, that's one heck of a cruise. You're going to spend $60,000 on a cruise? She's like, no, no, the cruise is 10 grand. I was like, in my mind, I'm like, okay, she needs $10,000 down for sure, right? Yeah. And I was like, then why 60K? Well, I, I want to make sure you got enough skin in the game. I'm going to make sure that this, like, that I'm safe. I was like, there's something, I asked her, I said, there's something I don't know about the house, right? What has you being so scared that I gave you ten dollars or $15,000 down, you go on your cruise, what am I going to find that I want to back out and give you the house back and lose my ten to fifteen grand? that would have been different if I gave you fifty dollars or $60,000? There's something there I don't know. And, but understanding their motive, understanding what's going on and helping them get there is absolutely critical. And so many people overstep that. They look and they want, want to see balance sheets. They want to send LOIs. Yeah. And I will oftentimes, I ask the question, why do you want to sell? And on a lot of cases, I'll just listen to them, stare them in the eye and say, now tell me, why do you really want to sell? And they'll say, well, tired of dealing with employees, labor today just isn't what it used to be, sick of managing people. But I didn't want to say that because I thought that would turn a buyer off. And I said, no, the best answer is an honest answer. It's easy to remember. It's going to be the same every time. So when a buyer asks me, why do you want to sell? I can tell them you're selling for health reasons. You're sick of the business. You're <laughs> sick of employees. Be honest. Yeah, absolutely. And I found that it takes a minimum of three times to get an honest answer from somebody. If they're trying to sell me something, like the first time they'll give me a story. The second time they'll give me a little bit of the truth. And at minimum, the third time that I ask. So I usually like, why are you selling the business? I'm looking to do something different. And you play the NLP game, something different. Yeah. Well, I want to do this, this, and that. It's like, then you give them a little bit more. You just repeat it back to them. Well, I'm just tired of managing people. I've got this solopreneur thing I'm going to do. I could do it all on my own. I don't want to manage anybody anymore. And then you get the truth, right? And in most cases, if I'm a buyer who doesn't mind managing people and or I like managing people, then it's a blessing to me because I was like, look, if he doesn't like managing people, chances are for the last six months, 12 months, he hasn't been managing them well. And if I can step in and treat them better and show them better guidance, we might be able to improve upon the business. That's real important. As a broker, 
sometimes my job I view as being a matchmaker as much as a salesman. Yeah, I've got to sell it, but you're going to have a better deal and better outcomes if you have the right match. I'll look at a business and say, and the owner is making half a million dollars a year. It's the most money he's ever dreamed of in his life. He's really happy. He's reached a level of contentment. And I look at it and I say, my God, what that business could do. If you just hire a salesman, if you get a website. So I want to sell that business to somebody who's good at marketing and promotion. If you can make half a million dollars a year with someone who hates that and doesn't do it, put in a buyer who's good at that, that next buyer is going to make a million dollars on it and, and pretty quickly. So I love your approach because you know a lot of these guys are going to come back 10 years from now and want to sell it again. And if they had a good experience with you, are going to bring it back to you. Right. Yeah. It's the same way when somebody brings me, I always ask, what did you do before this business? Especially if they've only, if they're trying to sell me a business or we're talking about buying a business that's been in business less than 10 years, I'll say, well, what did you do before that? And if I find out they grew and sold another business, I do my best to build the best, deepest rapport with this individual. And I asked that one guy, I said, man, like, you're a really cool guy, man. He said, you're really nice. Oh, it's intentional. I said, I want you to love me at the end of this transaction, whether I buy your business or not. And he says, why is that so important to you? I said, you've created three businesses you told me about. When you're ready to sell your next, all of them, he grows them to a certain point, hits them to, they were getting to about eight to ten million dollars. Get to he gets about forty five employees, and he just gets gets where he doesn't like to run the business. It's just too big for him, right? And then he sells it, takes about a year off, and then he comes up with another idea and does it again. I said, when you hit your next eight to ten million dollar business with forty five employees and want to sell it, I want to be on your list of people you call, <laughs> right? Uh, I'm fifty, but I plan on doing this until I can't do it anymore. I have a holding company. I plan on holding a lot of companies over the years that are well run. You're building decently ran companies or things I would do differently. I'm not going to lie to you, but uh, I want to be on your list when you, whenever you're done with this one. And you, even if, whether I buy this one or not, I want to know that you'll call me on the next call. All yeah. right. I think it's appropriate in every business deal, not to burn bridges behind you. You're going to look at things differently. And I see buyers come in that are so arrogant. they immediately want to change everything because they know better. And a lot of times I will suggest, you know what, even if you don't agree with it, he's been here for 20 years. He's successful. He's making a good, good margin. Don't change anything for six months. Go in, get to learn the business, get to understand the business. And then after you understand it and you've got some time in the saddle, then you can change the direction of that horse. But don't, don't do it right out of the starting gate. That's we going back to, we were talking about someone taking second or third lowest offer, not the highest offer for the deal. Part of that is a, most transactions today have the seller carrying a note. Very seldom you're going to get all cash. So where you get paid on the deferred portion of the purchase price depends on the success of that business. So you have to look at it and say, boy, I'm going to be carrying a note for half a million dollars. If I don't think the guy's going to be successful, then don't sell to him. You're going to lose out on the note. You've got to feel comfortable. So that's another reason. <laughs> I like to play poker. I'm about to give one of my tails away here. 
one of my tells is if I really like you as an entrepreneur. So right now I'm looking for media companies and stuff like that. That's what I look for. When I say media companies, I'm not talking about Fox News or anything. That's crazy. I'm talking about newsletters, podcasts, blogs, and it gets profitable already. And if I really like the entrepreneur that built it, I don't ever offer 100% of equity buyout, meaning I don't offer to buy 100% of the company. What I offer is 75. I want them to own a 20, 25% of it. I want them to stay engaged. I want them to believe my vision and where I'm going with it, but I want them to contribute ideas along the way because they built it up to this point. They know stuff about it that I don't. Not only will I do an order, have them finance part of the deal, but I try to leave some skin in the equity back to them because no people in the space. Most private equity groups do that. that They want to have skin in the game. You can have a contract that ties you to it, but part equity, again, in mid-market transactions, 70% 70% of the deals my firm sells are to private equity. And I would tell you the majority of those deals, they're buying 70% and having the seller roll 30% equity. And now they're typically holding it for five years and then they resell. And if you've got a good financial partner, in a lot of cases, my clients get more for 30% down the road than they did for the 70% to begin with. That can be a good model for everybody involved. It doesn't suit every situation, but it suits a lot of them. I interviewed one of the guys that been through that. He's got a couple of books out now. It's Adam Coffee. He was a heat and air company. And I think he went through, I want to say at least four or five private equity transaction where they kept him on as a CEO. The first one bought 80% and the next guy bought 70%. I asked him, what do those checks look like? He goes, well, the second check was bigger than the first. And then often... He says, more often than not, it was the, the next check was equal to or better than the previous one because we were growing so fast. And imagine a lot of these business owners are like, I don't want to hang around. It's not like if you're pulling 50, 60 hours a week now, if you negotiate with that private equity and say, hey, I got a back office for a little bit, uh, they're going to help you hone in on what you do best. I've seen it. I've seen where I know right now two guys that are they're doing their earnout. They didn't want the CEO title anymore. They wanted to be back to a soft lead software engineer because that was they helped build the software. They were good at it. They're hanging around on a about 25 to 30 hour a week lead software, you know, reviewing code and stuff and working on other projects. And the private equity firm is okay with that because they negotiated that from day one, right? So there is some leeway inside of these negotiations about how many hours you have to fit in on the other side. He had a private equity group I was talking to once and they said, They always make the seller hold some equity for a period of time. That's the golden handcuffs that hold them to the deal. And I said, what about the contracts? And he told me a story of a business they bought where they didn't make the seller hold any equity, but the seller agreed to work for them for two years afterwards. And so they had the closing. It was in the conference room at the business. They got done with the closing. The owner walked out the door, went down to the parking lot, got in his car and drove away. Sent a message saying, I'm moving to Costa Rica. Good luck. (laughs) He said the guy didn't even, the seller didn't even stay for the afternoon after he got his check. Now Mm. he agreed in the contract. And he negotiated what his salary was and everything that he was going to get working for the next two years. And he said, the guy's out of the country. He's got all of our money, right? The contract, and what, I'm going to sue him? So rolling equity is in that group. 
always mandatory. Yeah. And it's often beneficial, right? A lot of people don't understand. Like a lot of the people I talk to and the meetings that come, like that I host and stuff, are like, I don't want to sell private equity because I kind of want to be done. I say, if you sell your company and you kept thirty percent, would you work for it? Because they're thinking they're getting this one guy's like, I'll probably get a two two and a half million dollar check now. That's good enough for a little bit until I figure out what I want to do next. I said, if you get a two and a half million dollar check now and a five million dollar and the potential of a five million dollar check within five years, and you only needed to put in. 30 hours a week instead of 60 on this company, would you stay? He goes, well, absolutely. I said, then don't tell these private equity guys you're not interested because you can negotiate deals that are close to that, right? If you pick the right one, then in his particular company, you could grow that. The reason it wasn't growing is he doesn't know marketing. It went viral. It had a lot of referral growth, but if he got the word out through some good marketing in a private equity company, put in some money towards getting the word out, I think that company would double or triple. And if you look at the way that private equity does it, it's going to double and triple because of the other acquisitions it makes. But uh, I said, Qu quit telling people you don't want to talk to private equity. I think you're making a mistake there. Yeah, I mean, private equity is like anything else. There are good brokers, there are bad brokers. There are good private equity groups, there are bad. I've got 3,500 private equity groups in my database. We've been collecting those names for 35 years and from nine different offices across the country. So this is something I don't tell them, but I'll tell you and your audience in our, in our CRM, we have notes and the note will say next to the private equity group, talk to John about them. Now we don't want to put in the, in writing that these guys never do what they say. They retrade deals. They lie. They don't have their, you know, what all the bad stuff. So when, Anytime we get a deal with a private equity group, we go look at the CRM and go, oh, okay. I remember one deal like that. One of my partner in Colorado, I called and said, hey, you've got a note in the CRM about this company. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah. They are the classic trip to Tahiti. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean trip to Tahiti? He said, oh, you haven't heard that? He said, that's something the private, it's a, tactic private equity groups use, or some professional buyers. They'll come in, they'll say, yeah, oh man, this is, Ron, this is great. I'll give you $10 million in cash. Now, we, we just have to go through our due diligence and they'll stretch out due diligence for six months. And then at the last minute, they'll come back in and go, oh, Ron, I'm really sorry, but, but due diligence, we found that there was a piece of bubble gum underneath the conference room table and all my partners wanted to cancel the deal, but I've talked them into staying in it. Only thing is we're going to now with what we found, the price will be 5 million instead of 10. It'll be a million down and 4 million on an earn out. Now I know that makes you unhappy, but this process takes a year to sell a business. You can go back to market, find another buyer, spend a year at, it. you're going to end up in the same place. Or if you take our new terms, we can close next week. And you'll have that million dollar check or whatever it is. And what they've done is when they offered the 10 million cash, mentally, they sent the seller to Tahiti. Six months they were in due diligence. He was sitting on the beach, got his feet up, got the Corona on the table next to him. And he has checked out of the business. So that's why they call it a trip to Tahiti. Now you come back. You're going to take lesser terms and have your money and be back in Tahiti in two weeks. 
or are you going to go back through the whole process for a year again? So that one equity group I ended up not deciding not to work with because they were known within our organization for a trip to Tahiti. <laughs> I had a similar situation in the real estate world where one of my, he's a friend. I still consider him a friend. I'm friends with him on Facebook and I won't say what he does. He's professional in one of the sports. I won't say what that sport is because it'll give me away. Everybody listens that knows me knows exactly who I'm talking about, but uh, he's a sports professional and a real estate investor and he owns a few other businesses, but uh, his game was he would submit, he had a team, he'd submit a hundred, 200, 300 offers a week. And full price offers on MLS and then for real estate. And then it would say contingent upon inspection. And then people would accept his offer. You'd put in there 90 days or 180 days to close. And then you would basically lock it up into contract for, for three months to six months. And then when his inspector went over there, they found all this stuff wrong with it. And they would beat them yep. down on the price. And they couldn't sell it. They're under contract. They couldn't sell it to anybody else. Yep. And I was like, he's like, you got to do this. This is, it works. I was like, I'm just not playing that game. I'm not I'm I'm doing people that way. Yeah. Works for you. Don't work for me. And yeah. it's like, well, it, it would work. He, he didn't get it. Like, he, oh, it would work for you. And I was like, no, it doesn't morally work for me. I'm not interested. Right. Yeah. I don't want to create a, a pool of people who hate my guts. So he just didn't care. But a different mindset. And I know private equity. The whole reason I leave equity on the table is I'm like, what do the big guys do out of what do they do? What can I implement that'll work for me? But I don't have to implement the stuff I don't like or goes against my moral compass. Right. Yeah. Finding a private equity group is like finding a partner in a business. Finding a business partner is like getting married. And you know what? 50% of marriages end up in divorce. You don't want to get married after the first day. You want to check out your partner. All the same analogies apply in a business transaction. But sometimes that I go to another point. I oftentimes have a seller say to me, I want all cash. I won't take anything but cash. I want to sell 100%. I won't sell any less than that. I won't carry. And I'll say, yes, you will. I'll say, no, I won't. I'll say, yes, you will. And I said, okay, I got two options for you here. Option number one is you're going to get $5 million in cash and you can walk away. He goes, yeah, that's what I want. I went, no, wait a minute. Option number two is you get $5 million in cash and you get to keep 30% of the business. Now, which do you want? Well, I'll take option two. I said, see, you will take, you will roll equity. In fact, sometimes rolled equity is something that I use or an earnout as a negotiating tool. Depending on the size of the business, smaller businesses typically go to market with a price. Mid larger companies, we go to market without a price. We try and get multiple buyers play one against the other in a polite way, run an auction environment. And so let's say we think the business is worth $10 million and somebody comes in and offers 15 million for it. We're not going to say, oh God, that's a lot more than I thought. Fantastic. I'll take it. <laughs> There's due diligence and a lot more negotiation to come. We might say, well, that 15 million is a nice down payment. And I believe in enough in the business that I want more, but I'll take it on a note or I'll take the 15 million, but I'll give you 80% of the company for it. And I'll keep 20. You're negotiating and you're using that earn out that equity role as part of your negotiation. That helps. Yeah. So in that scenario, one of the things that comes to my mind is I have a, I have some people that I've been talking to and 
they're like, I'll just sell it myself. I've sold my last two companies. I use brokers in those, but I'm going to sell this myself. So like, okay, who are you going to sell it to? And they're like, well, probably private equity. I was like, okay, would you sit down? Like, I asked the guys, I don't play chess, but the only scenario I could think of in my own head was chess. I said, do you play chess? And I was like, yeah, he goes, yeah, I'm pretty decent at it. It's like, okay, are you at, what level are you? And he gave me a level because he knew. And I was like, was that grandmaster level? He's like, no. I said, would you sit down with a grandmaster and play against them for your business? He says, well, absolutely not. And I said, why would you go to try to sell your business to private equity when those guys are freaking grandmasters at what they do? And you don't have that database. You don't know these companies. I said, go find a broker. Go find an advisor that been doing this for 10 or 15 years. They have that list of brokers. They know how, I mean, those private equity companies, they know their behavior. They know what they've done in the past. They know their history, stuff you don't know. And they can help you navigate this transaction. If you're going to sell your business to your buddy, or to your son or son-in-law. That's one thing. You could probably negotiate that with a small team of accountants, attorneys. You're going to sell this to a sophisticated buyer. You probably should not have a one-sided transaction, put somebody sophisticated on your team. And he said, well, I'm pretty sophisticated. I was like, all right, well, good luck. That scares me as people think that because they've done something before they can do it again. Yeah, I see that all the time. And while you're, people say, well, Jim, you're just biased because you're a broker. Well, like, yeah, I am. But I sold a number of businesses on my own, and I thought I knew everything about doing it. I went through a large number of transactions. Years later, as a broker, I look back and go, man, was I stupid. <laughs> you don't know what you don't know. And you also have to understand that selling a business is an emotional process. If you said the most you could dream of is $5 million for your business. And you're sitting across from somebody who says, I'll give you 10 million. Could you really keep a straight face and not show that? A lot of what we do is educate people about the process, but that emotion, like I said before, it's like giving your child up for adoption. You need to separate that emotion and the broker can do that. The broker knows the buyers, they know the value, they know the process and selling a business is a full-time thing. Most businesses when we sell, we want to keep it confidential. You don't want your employees, your customers, your vendors knowing it's for sale. You get calls during, you're selling a business, you're talking with buyers during the day. Can you afford to take hours out of your day to talk with buyers? I see people do that and then their sales start declining because they're spending their effort on not running the business, but running the process. People think, oh, I'm going to save myself six, eight, 10, 12%, whatever the commission rate is. And the last study I read said on average, when someone uses a broker, on average, they get about 25% more. The broker is going to more than pay for himself. No, this coffin with one last now. So I'll give you a scenario. You got a business for sale, private equity company you've never dealt with reaches out and says they're interested in it, but somebody in your network sold five businesses to them. What do you do? I call them. We do research. I say, how are they to deal well? What kind of tricks did they play? Do they do just, it's like checking out a reference. Yeah. You're going to, you're going to find out about these people and are they the best buyers? What I'm seeing a lot today with good businesses is that buyers are reaching out to businesses directly and they want to be the only player. 
when I represent a seller, I'm going to get multiple buyers, play one against the other and drive the price up. When I represent a buyer, I don't want any other buyers involved. I want to get it as cheap as I can. Well, I see buyers reaching out to businesses and the owner thinks, boy, I got a great buyer. I'll give you one short story, quick example. I got a call on a Wednesday. I said, hey, I've got a letter of intent to sell my business. I talked to my lawyer. He said, I ought to talk to you before I sign it. So come in and see me. He does. He said, okay, I've negotiated. They reached out to me directly. They're in my industry. It's a synergistic buyer. I really like these guys. We've spent eight months negotiating. I've got them up to 6 million bucks. Well, my lawyer said I should talk to you first. I said, okay. Give them my name, tell them you're hiring a broker. This is the largest transaction of your life and you want to be professionally represented. Tell them I'll call them in two weeks as soon as I get my arms around the deal. And he says, oh God, we can't wait two weeks. He said, the letter of intent expires on Monday. I said, trust me, I've done this a long time. I got eight months negotiating, they will wait. So he took my advice, called the buyer. The buyer said, oh God, don't get some damn broker in the middle of this. They just delay it and screw it up. And we got eight months in this. And I said, no, nope, no, nope, I want a broker. That's Thursday afternoon. Friday morning, the buyer calls the seller back and said, listen, I really don't want this delayed with some damn broker in the middle. You agree to leave the broker out and I'll give you 8 million instead of six. The <laughs> seller called me and said, hey, it took me eight months to get into six million. I haven't even signed your representation agreement. And in 24 hours, you got me $2 million more. I said, well, I guess you're signing my representation agreement now, aren't you? <laughs> and he did. And we sold the business to somebody else for $10 million. Yep. I thought $6 million was a good price. The buyer was happy to pay, go to eight to keep me out of the deal because it was a $10 million business. Sellers don't know what they don't know. And I can, I could go on from now until the cows come home of stories I've heard of people who sold their business because they were contacted directly and they thought they'd save themselves a commission. And I don't have the heart to tell them, but I go, man, you left money on the table. You could have got a million dollars more, but they liked the number that was on the table. I had a, uh, a business networking hangout where we had some people in and guys like I sold my business two years ago for X, Y, and Z. And there was a broker in the room that's like you, he had less leg experience. I think he had like 15 years experience. The guy asked him four questions. Like what was your EBITDA? What was the industry? Did you have any customer concentration look like? And he said, you left. And then at the end of the four questions, he looked at the guy and said, you left money on the table. It goes that year that you sold that I sold four software companies like yours for nearly double what you got for on a multiple. Companies were paying twice that and multiple that year. The guy thought he was good at getting like a 4X or something like that. He goes, companies were paying all day long 8X for that type of software, recurring revenue and everything. Yeah, I mean, you can sell a construction company for a three or four multiple and a software company easily can hit with an 8, 10 multiple of its yep. recurring revenue. Right. Now, the hard part is when the construction company owner comes to me and says, Hey, my buddy just sold a software company for a multiple eight. I want to sell my construction company for a multiple eight. Going downstream is much harder than going upstream. Or you get into other industries and it's done totally different altogether. So for these, for content sites and newsletters, it's totally different math. That's based off of not EBITDA or seller's discretionary or anything. It's actually off of revenue because the 
profit margins on it on these are astronomically if you get something like a content website or a newsletter and stuff and their profit margins under 70 percent, they're doing something wrong it's very profit it's done off a of multiple revenue and it's usually 36 to 42 times month average monthly revenue so you take their revenue over the last 12 months divide it by 12 and then you're paying between 36 and 42 months of average monthly revenue so it's totally different model. So yeah, having somebody that knows the industry, the first one I see and I offer the guy, I said, well, what, you, what do you make for a year? I offered him three times, which would be 36 still, mm-hmm. his profit. And he's like, no, that's not how this is done. He knew enough to know better. So I had to go do my research and realized I stepped into a new industry without looking at how that industry was, value, the valuations were done. Mm-hmm. And you've done stuff across all, so many different industries. If you step into another industry that you got to look at, the comps in the real estate world. You got to look at what's happening in that space. What are people paying? What's normal? We're above the hour now. I think we could talk for a long time on this. We're both passionate about the topic and stuff. If somebody could remember two or three things from the show and from you, what would that be? Run your business like you're never going to sell it and run it like you're going to sell it tomorrow. Awesome. So keep fired up, motivated, but keep your, like you're never going to sell it and keep your accounting and your paperwork and stuff like you're going to sell it tomorrow in your management operating systems. I get that right. That's right. Exactly correct. And then how do people reach out with to you? What's the best way to contact you if they want to have you look at their business, maybe have you help buy one or sell one for them? Uh, we have offices in nine cities around the country, so we can help people most anywhere if we can and refer them to the right people. Let's say email, email, phone, website, any of those would work. Email, I'll make sure your I'll make sure your website and your email address get into the show notes so that people can reach out to that. And the website is IG or excuse me, IBGbusiness.com. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. IB is in boy, G is in I forgot India, what it is. Bravo Golf. There you go. Internet. I'm prior military and you know that faster than I, I was like, well, why did I forget that? They made us memory when I was military intelligence. We had to memorize that type of stuff. But yeah. So awesome. I appreciate your time today. I use that all the time. All right. So India Bravo Golf Business singular.com and then you can get in there i appreciate your time today and we'll call that a show all right thanks ron appreciate it hey it's your host ronald skelton i want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline 918-641-4150 that's 918-641-4150 call us and tell us about our show ask questions uh, suggest a guest or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace, we have partnered with, has a proprietary database of 50,000-plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software-as-a-service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT 
exchangenet.com slash marketplace. How to exit. That link will be in the show notes. Visit them now.